Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome. My name is Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Pete's, and welcome to our live stream. Uh, you don't always get to see behind the scenes the things we're doing to make this possible, but this morning, uh, everything just stopped working, and we couldn't figure it out. And it turned out it was just this four-foot cable. But the problem is the only other cable we have is about a foot and a half long. And so what you don't get to see is that our faithful servant, Paul, is sprawled out on the floor in front of our computer, clicking buttons, because that's what serving Jesus looks like on a Sunday morning at St. Pete's. So I just want to say a big thank you to Paul. Uh, he's, he's making this possible, and uh, we're, we're grateful for him. Uh, before we dig into our passage this morning, a beautiful Easter passage, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. Uh, well, we give you thanks for Paul, and we give you thanks for our whole team here, and we, we give you thanks that we can gather through this medium uh, and still remain connected to you and to one another. And so as we open your word, we ask that you apply it to our minds so we not grow shallow, apply it to our hearts so we not grow cold, and apply it to our feet, that we'd not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, my plan was, after our little Easter series, to pick back up the Gospel of Luke and continue on into our next passage, which would have been Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And to be honest, I actually have like seven-eighths of a sermon written on it, but something just wasn't sitting right about it. And as I sat with that tension, as I prayed, I just felt like we need a second Easter sermon. Because Easter, as we've been saying, isn't just a day, it's it's a season. It's a season of 50 days. And so it seems appropriate that on the second Sunday of Easter, we would look at another resurrection passage. And today I want us to sit with the resurrection experience of the Apostle Thomas. Thomas is often pigeonholed as the patronized saint of doubt, but in reality, he is the patron saint of belief. He's pigeonholed as this patronized saint of doubt, but in reality, he is the patron saint of belief. And so by looking at the resurrection experience of Thomas, we can learn a lot about the nature of faith and about how doubt plays into our faith. So if you have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be, verses 24 through 25. Here's what we read. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The fear of missing out, the fear of missing out. We all know it, but not like Thomas knows it. Thomas, one of the 12 apostles, somehow managed to miss the first resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples. I can't imagine it. You know, the Apostle John, he simply writes, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. And we don't know where Thomas was or what he was up to. You know, perhaps he drew the short straw and he was sent out by the disciples to go and get some food for everybody because DoorDash didn't exist yet. We don't know. But whatever he was doing, I'm sure Thomas began to doubt whether the trip of leaving and missing out on this was really worth it. I mean, he's rocking the new tunic. It was a really good, good sale. But was it resurrection good? I don't know. 
You know, Thomas, he misses out on seeing the risen Lord, and Thomas comes back to the room where everybody's gathered, but the vibe has really changed since he left. The moment he steps through the door, people are saying, we've seen the Lord. I mean, what is going on here? Have they lost their minds? If you missed out on something that took place at a party because you were out and you came back and all your friends were like, oh, you had to see it. Lloyd just started levitating and he put his hands like this and Preston just started floating too and then they disappeared through the walls. I mean, really, like, what would you say? I, you would probably say a lot of things, but you would at least think, they've lost their minds. This is lunacy. Thomas saw Jesus was crucified. He was placed in a tomb, in l- burial linens. Dead stuff stays dead. If this claim from the disciples, you know, we've seen the Lord, makes you feel tense, Scripture says you're in good company. And what does Thomas say? Look again at uh, verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Never believe. Even the earliest disciples of Jesus had a tough time wrapping their minds around the reality of resurrection. And I want to add a point of clarity here because Thomas often gets a bad rap. He's often patronized as the saint of doubt. But the author Brandon O'Brien makes a really helpful point about Thomas's experience. Here's what he says. History knows Thomas as the doubter, but he didn't doubt Jesus. Rather, he doubted what the other apostles told him about Jesus. Confronted with Jesus himself, Thomas immediately worshipped and believed. The reason this matters to me is because a lot of contemporary doubting is not so much a matter of people doubting Jesus himself as it is people doubting some prevailing testimony about Jesus by those who claim to have seen him. What is doubted is not the gospel, but the reliability of the witnesses. So instead of shaming people for their lack of faith, those of us in some form of spiritual leadership, and I would add spiritual influence, should make every effort to be reliable witnesses. There is a difference between doubting Jesus and doubting his witnesses. If you're struggling to believe in Jesus because what you've seen in the church or because of failures you've experienced through his witnesses, I want you to know there's room for you in this community. There's room for that kind of doubt. There's room for doubt. And what we hope is that as you chip away at that doubt, as you listen to it, as you wrestle through it, that you would actually then come to the foundation. That you would come to the foundation that is Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you would discover Jesus afresh and then rebuild from there. That's our hope for you. And so I find it important to name that Thomas didn't doubt Jesus. He doubts the witnesses. And Thomas says he needs to see Jesus for himself. And if we were in his shoes, we would likely doubt our friends too. We would say we need to see it for ourselves. But Thomas also says he's not just content to see Jesus for himself. What does he say? He says, unless I see the wounds, unless I can trace the contours of of the scars in his wrists and, and put my fingers into the spear that pierced his side, I will never believe. It's very graphic and explicit. 
And what we see is Thomas thinks he knows what he needs in order to believe. And unless he sees it, he's going to remain skeptical. He will doubt. Because the last time he checked, nobody comes back from the dead. And our initial reaction to the resurrection could be very much the same. And and this is why I think so many people say, look, believe whatever you want to believe. If it makes your life better, great. But if you want me to believe that the resurrection is a real historic event, I'm going to need a little more than your word on it. And typically, on some level, all of us think we know what we would need in order to believe. It might be Jesus showing up right in front of you and saying, I am the Lord. That might help. It might help if God opened up the skies and said, hi, I'm God, believe in Jesus. That might help. But unless all of these things happen or one of these things happen or whatever it is in your mind happens, you won't believe. You'll you'll remain maybe open but skeptical or cynical or, or doubt it all. And that's where we see Thomas And that's where many of us are too. And and sure, it's perfectly reasonable and rational. Dead stuff stays dead. The resurrection goes against everything we see in the material observable world. And for a week, and this is what I appreciate about Scripture, for a week, the Apostle Thomas had to live like the rest of us. He heard people sharing the good news of resurrection, but he only heard the accounts of the witnesses. He didn't see it for himself, and so he had to live between the tension of what he was hearing and his lived experience. And so we read in verses 26 through 29 that eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. You better believe Thomas didn't leave their side for eight days straight. He was there every single moment, every single day. Let's wait and see. He's there with the disciples, and we go on and read. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus shows up, and let's be honest, like in a pretty awesome way. And how can you not love verse 26? Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I mean, that would freak you out. And so maybe you're thinking for the first time, I can follow that Jesus. A Jesus who can be raised from the dead and yet can still be playful and, and, and have a practical joke on his disciples. That's the kind of God I can follow. Jesus shows up with peace. He shows up with peace, but also with his wounds. The risen Christ has scars. Being raised from the dead doesn't erase them. The scars of Good Friday are still visible on Easter Sunday. Jesus shows up and offers Thomas peace, and he offers his wounds. And this is exactly what Thomas said he would need to believe. But if we're attentive to What's going on? This episode is actually a little bit strange. You know, on the one hand, Jesus does exactly what Thomas says he needs. He offers up his wounds for examination. And then it comes with this exhortation. Don't disbelieve, but believe. You said this is what you need, Thomas. Here it is. But on the other hand, Jesus corrects him once he believes. And he says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
You know, it feels kind of like that unhealthy moment in a relationship or marriage. You might say to someone, hey, I know we maybe had plans tonight, but I got invited out to do this. Would you mind if I go? And they say, yeah, sure, go. And so you press a bit like, no, like really, like, are you okay? Like, yeah, you go. You're in a double bind because you know, if you stay home, they're going to say to you, well, why didn't you go out? I said, you could go out. But if you go out and you come home, they're going to be like, well, why did you go out? You could tell I was upset. You're in a double bind. If you stay home, you lose. If you go out, you lose. I don't recommend doing this to anyone ever, anywhere, at any time or any place. It is bad communication. It's not going to help your relationship. But it does seem, doesn't it, like Thomas is being put in a double bind by Jesus. You need to see me to believe? Well, here you go. Oh, now you believe because you see me? Well, it'd be better if you didn't. But here's what you need to hear. Jesus is not an emotional manipulator. Maybe you need to hear that again. Jesus is not an emotional manipulator. If you have a background of that, you're safe with Jesus. There's something else happening in this strange predicament. Now, there's actually two things happening. Thomas, as an apostle, needs this experience, and we need Thomas to have this experience for our own sake. So let me explain. Thomas, as an apostle, needs this experience. Apostles in the scriptures are eyewitness, um, eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They get the royal treatment. They see Jesus firsthand. They get all the empirical, rational, existential, physical, spiritual proof you could ever need in order to believe. They didn't just come up with a bunch of ideas. The Gospels and the various letters of the New Testament are accounts of what they saw and touched and heard, the history and the evidence of the resurrection. And, and since Thomas is among the twelve, since he is an apostle, he needs to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. But second, we need Thomas to be an eyewitness for our own sake so that we can learn about the nature of belief. If we're attentive to the text, and I love this, we'll note that nothing is said about Thomas following through on the demands he made. Despite all these paintings throughout the ages where Thomas is actually touching the wounds, the text doesn't say he did. The text doesn't say that he reached out to touch Jesus. He doesn't touch where the nails pierced. He doesn't put his fingers in the side where the spear went. He didn't need to go this far. You see, Thomas teaches us that believing in Jesus doesn't depend on our doubts and our skepticism being assuaged the way we think it should be. And I know this flies in the, the face of our day and age. We think we know what we need in order to believe. We think we know whether we've never believed or where we need a refresher, what sort of thing might help? And I don't know what that is specifically for you, but I'm sure something comes to mind. But whether you've considered yourself a follower of Jesus for a while or you need a booster shot or, or, or you've just never taken that step, you have some sort of idea about what you think you would need in order to believe or continue believing or start believing. Kids are like this. They think they know what they need, but they really don't. Uh, my two daughters, if they had it their way, when the sun rises, they would eat uh, cereal, cereal, that's sugar, and then sit on the couch and watch Netflix all day and eat candy and candy and Netflix and Netflix, and then the sun would go down and they would stay up and keep watching shows and watching shows and maybe fall asleep and wake up and watch shows and eat candy all day, every day, day after day. In fact, my, my oldest daughter broke her arm when she was five, and sometimes she brings it up, and she goes, 
you remember when I broke my arm? And like, as a father, I'm like, yeah, it was a terrible experience. She's like, it was awesome. The next day, you let me watch TV all day. You know, our youngest daughter, during COVID, she's like, I just want to fly somewhere. Why do you miss airplanes? Because you let us watch the iPad on airplanes. Like, that is not a reason to fly somewhere. If our daughters had it their way, Julia and I would do everything they want, whenever they want, no matter what they want. We would be waiting on them hand and foot because they think they know what they need, but they really don't. We know what they need. They need protein and vegetables and whole grains and milk and water. They need to brush their teeth. They need minimal screens and lots of time to play outside. They need a good 10 to 12 hours of sleep, and they just need to stay in bed so we can have some peace of mind at night. Thomas's story exposes how we don't fully know what we need in order to believe. Whatever it is we think we need to believe, that's not always what we actually need. We might think we need to see Jesus in a specific kind of way with our own two eyes, but then Jesus turns around and says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we can believe without seeing. Thomas can believe without touching the wounds themselves. But what do we need then? Well, of course, we need faith. But we need faith that helps us see the resurrected wounds of Christ. Why didn't Thomas reach out and touch the wounds? Jesus offered them up. He had the chance to do it. Well, Thomas sees Jesus, and he sees the wounds, and something clicks. Something clicks. These aren't wounds to be exploited for an empirical examination to establish belief. They're not impersonal objects for scientific observation. Thomas doesn't need to touch them because Jesus' wounds on his resurrected body speak to the deepest parts of us. Richard Selzer was a surgeon who just had a remarkable gift for putting his everyday work experience into words. And there's this striking moment from his career that he describes, and here's what he says. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of a facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon followed with religious fervor the, cure, the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. He bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that her kiss still works. The wounds of Christ's resurrected body show us how far he's gone to embrace us. He has twisted and mangled himself to save us, the wounded, the marred, the broken, the scarred. When Jesus appeared behind those locked doors to his fearful disciples who were wounded and ashamed, the very disciples who had all 
utterly abandoned him three days prior. He showed them his scars, but he wasn't saying, look what you did to me. It was a kiss that conformed to their wounds. It was as if the Lord were saying, I know your wounds. I know your wild imperfections, your sins, your darkness, your brokenness. Not only do I see it, but I'm willing to meet you there. I'm willing to be twisted and shaped so that we can meet. We can't look to Christ's wounds then without then looking to our own and seeing that he has been raised with wounds so that our wounds might be healed. But I also wonder, how did Jesus know that Thomas said, unless I can touch the wounds for myself, I won't believe? All we can conclude is that Jesus was present with Thomas even when he wasn't physically there. And Thomas realizes this now. Thomas comes to see that Jesus knows his hearts and his, his heart, his thoughts, his concern, his skepticism, his struggles, his disbelief, his selfishness, his sin, his own wounds. Jesus knows it all. And in the same way, Jesus sees you through and through. The radiant, wounded Christ sees us through and through in all of our brokenness, our deepest mistrust of him because of the things we've been through that just can't be undone. And even so, he embraces us in all our brokenness. Because Jesus sees Thomas and he sees us through and through and he offers his wounds, wounds that speak to the deepest parts of us with a message, peace be with you. Now, peace in the scriptures isn't just a tranquil feeling. Here's what Jesus is saying. Peace be with you because your sins are forgiven and now sin has lost its power. Peace be with you because death is defeated. It is no longer your end, but an open door into my presence. Peace be with you because nothing can separate you from my love. Peace be with you because I am here always, forever. And all of this is enough to overwhelm Thomas's doubt and skepticism. Thomas sees Jesus' wounds and they speak to him about who Jesus is. But then seemingly out of nowhere, Thomas just blurts out in verse 28, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And this is what makes Thomas the patron saint of belief. Because this is the greatest profession of faith in Jesus anywhere in the scriptures. Thomas explicitly calls Jesus my God. You know, Thomas, he, he hasn't just given in then to the lunacy of the resurrection that's taken a hold of his friends. He ups the ante. He calls Jesus God. You know, if Thomas is wrong, he's blaspheming. You have to understand that for an ancient Orthodox Jew, this is a staggering claim. And Thomas then is banking his whole life and identity on Jesus, the resurrected but wounded Lord. How did Thomas get there? No, it's one thing for him to go from death to resurrection, but then from Lord to God. I don't have a good answer for you. There's no rational explanation, but if you truly gaze upon Christ's wounds with faith, as Thomas did, your lips will make the same confession. The paradox of the Christian life is this. You can believe in Jesus without seeing the proof you think you need. And through his wounds, you will discover God. 
Now hear me. I'm not saying we check our minds at the door. I'm not saying we shut off reason. I'm not saying we just adhere to a blind faith. Our faith is based on historical eyewitness accounts of the apostles, the people who actually saw this and didn't believe what they were seeing at first, but their minds were changed as they saw the risen Lord and his risen wounds. So look to his living, beautiful wounds, the wounds that cry out to our own souls. Look to Christ's now eternal wounds. Because Jesus wears his wounds forever for us so that we'll always know there is no boundary to his love for us. He wears his wounds forever so we can know that everything he accomplished for us on the cross will never be undone. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he put our sins from us. So be still. Fix your eyes on the risen wounds of Jesus and know, and know that he is God. Be still. Fix your eyes on the risen wounds of Jesus and know He is God. Let's pray.